Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, random Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. We have transcripts in our link tree in our Instagram bio at The Grand Thunk. You can message us there or email us, thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We really do love to hear from you. We say it every week, but we really do. So please subscribe, <laughs> rate, review and tell all your friends. Thank you. How are you doing? Mm, really well, really Ooh. well. I'm still sticky and wet sweaty like last week. <laughs> the way you went, mm, before you said you were really well, suggested you were going to go, mm, I'm, I'm terrible. But I'm glad you are. I'm glad you are well. <laughs> I feel very energised this week because I, mm. I watched the BAFTAs on the weekend and I just get so, oh, yeah. I just love watching a good award ceremony. And just mm-hmm. had a lovely Sunday evening with a cup of tea and some galaxy chocolate watching the BAFTAs. Do you do you also enjoy a good awards show? No. Well, I would love to. And I would love to also know the format. Do, they, do you get to see the whole red carpet thing? Do you get to see them coming in in their dresses, then sitting down? They do do a little bit of that. How much do you see? Presenters, they're like, welcome to the 2021 BAFTAs. And mm-hmm. years and years did like a musical set to a montage mm-hmm. of all of the people arriving an hour earlier yeah. or however long of, so you, you kind of see them all arriving but it's not live which mm. is nice because it's much more interesting so you just get to like have a good look at everyone see them all having a, a whale of a time and then yeah, it yeah. starts Richard Oady was the host who's brilliant and also I think it was so perfect that it was him because it is an awkward format you know presenting a, an awards show which is usually an, a massive auditorium full of stars and like obviously mm-hmm. last year there were no people in the audience and then this year there were but there were just a handful there's probably like 50 people all spaced out so it was still well awkward to host a, a show that's meant to be full of jokes and like the compare is mm. there holding it all together but his type yeah. of humor and his style is so like awkward anyway that it just worked so well <laughs> i just think he's great so yeah big up the baftas you, you could catch up you could enjoy a bit of baftas on rewind well, yes, I really should. My husband, a show that he was working on, won a BAFTA. <gasps> His team won a BAFTA. So I really should oh watch and, and see the awards moment. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh, that's huge. You definitely should have so been the exciting. one that watched it, not me. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm going to make him sit down and acknowledge, acknowledge his success. That's so cool. So in normal times, do you think he would have been able to go and I could have watched him on the red carpet strutting his stuff? Well, I don't know because I think it was, I'm not totally sure of which category it was. I don't know how large the team was. I know the design team was relatively small-ish. I've no idea. I've no idea. Wow. <laughs> I'm a bad wife. Bad wife. <laughs> terrible. Doc 10 points. <laughs> well, my top picks from the BAFTAs, obviously not knowing that Rue was part of them. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. I'm going to talk about who won what. If you need a lovely little happy cry at something beautiful, mm. go and look up Paul Meskell accepting his award for best actor in a TV show because it's so endearing and gorgeous and wonderful for his role as Aww. Connell, your absolute favourite person in Normal People. <laughs> <laughs> he's just so 
totally genuinely shocked to even be mm-hmm. there slash have won and he's so overwhelmed oh, with kind of gratitude and excitement and it was just totally gorgeous and everyone's happy and grateful and surprised mm. and say they are but you can see on some people's face and they really really are and it's so nice Aww. so that was good and I May Destroy You also did really well which I was so pleased about because yes. that was just oh pivotal mm-hmm. in last year's TV and the other person mm. who I was so thrilled for in her speech was great was Amy Lou Wood who plays Amy she's called Amy in the show as well I think in Sex Education have you seen Sex Education mm. yes yes I have yes yeah. so Amy playing Amy who, which I can't remember she's, she's the best friend of like your main lass does she make a cake yes yes that's her okay yeah yeah and she won for best female comedy performance and I just oh wow love her she's so funny she's got funny bones she's naturally hilarious and she's great in that show and it was such a strong category i totally agree that was such a good role yeah she played the characters in many ways it could have been that like karen from mean girls if you know what i mean the like blonde bimbo Mm. type but she plays it really well and with real heart in a way that is genuinely funny and not just ridiculous yeah i kind of hate that i described her as the best friend because she she's that (laughs) character with way more layers and way more fun do you know what I mean she is that trope yeah. of best friend of the main female lead but then she makes that character a huge thing for itself rather than mm. being who she's playing off and it's just great anyway so she won as well and mm. she's just so lovable I just want to be her friend and all in all I just love the BAFTAs it's, it's the only one I properly watch the other award ceremonies yeah. the American ones I just I'm not that dedicated to watching in the middle of the night and I catch up the next day and watch the good speeches <laughs> But the BAFTAs just always fill my little heart with joy. So that was great fun. Gosh, well, I might rewatch that. It sounds really fun. Yeah. What's been sparking a joy in your life? Well, <laughs> I think you're going to have to bear with me as oh. I take you on a little journey. <laughs> mm, okay. Because I've been on a very strange exploration this week. So I've been listening to Lil Nas X's Montero song. Have you heard it? No. Have you seen the music video? No. So Lil Nas X did, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. Okay, yes. That song. Got it. Thank you. So he did that one. And then he's done another song more recently, which is like, call me what you know. Da, 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 da. Do you know it? I enjoyed it, but I, I'm afraid I do not recognise that one. I feel like I'm on a game show. This is great. Keep going. <laughs> I think, okay, I'm, I'm tempted to take a pause now and make you listen to that song and watch the music video. Okay, be right back. Call me what you know. Wow. Okay. So not to put you on the spot, but first impressions, what do you reckon? I mean, there's a lot to take in. <laughs> I I just never think to watch a music video. I never would come across them. I'd never like actively seek them out. And then like, you watch something like that and you realise that's like a million extra layers mm. to a song that's almost like a completely new piece. It's crazy. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't seen the video yet, but you definitely should it's a take on the Genesis story with Brock Wiggs, Pink Skies, and then there's this fantastic moment where Lil Nas is ascending 
to heaven towards a waiting angel and then this spear appears in his hands and it turns out to be a pole and he pole dances all the way down into hell where he starts <laughs> twerking on the devil and it just feels like a really radical and iconic music video and it's just awesome it's, it's a really catchy fun song I liked how it was so inverted at the end that he was playing that sort of female dancer in a music video role as a man on the mm. devil it was great and it looks mm. so weird and obscene and like out of place and it's so normalized when it's a female body doing that so yeah. i thought that was really cool yeah. i liked how it felt it felt like a game like a gaming type visual do you know what i mean it, it felt i don't know anything mm. about gaming either but that's what it looked like and then it kept flicking then to more real life live action rather than the kind of animated stuff but it was mm. cool yeah so I listened to a video of Lil Nas. It's so hard for me to say Lil Nas. It doesn't trip off my tongue. Um, I listened to a video of Lil Nas discussing the lyrics of his song in a genius video, which I'll... Genius is in... I mean, the video is pretty good, but it's not genius. It's the brand genius, I think, or the <laughs> label genius. And I'll put it in the show notes below. But a couple of things stood out to me from his discussion of his lyrics. As you said, he he points out his use of explicit language about another man in his lyrics. And he said that when he was writing the song, everyone in the studio was a little bit shocked by the lyrics. And then he pointed out all the hugely graphic, graphic language that gets used in hetero songs. So why Mm. not? make an lgbtq song that is that has graphic language in in order to make it normalized which Ooh. i thought was a really great point and then the video obviously doubles down on that and then the second thing that struck me was the use of the lyric call me by your name which was a reference to the film call me by your name the full line being call me by your name and i'll call you by mine did you ever watch that film no did you not no i know it's on the list. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, well, it's the most beautiful film. It's set in an Italian villa and it's the love story between Elio and Oliver. Oliver's an archaeology student who comes to stay in the villa and it's just beautifully shot and it's a beautiful story and it's got the most stunning music. So... <laughs> I'll get on that. Yeah, no, for sure. Like That film is, is, is wonderful. One of the stunning songs, <laughs> The Mystery of Love by Sufjan Stevens has these lyrics and I'll read them out to you. Lord, I no longer believe, drowned in living waters, cursed by the love that I received from my brother's daughter, like Hephaestion who died, Alexander's lover. Now my riverbed has dried, shall I find no other? Which, the importance of the lyrics, as well as the lyrics being stunning, is the reference to Hephaestion, Alexander's lover, because apparently Alexander the Great and Hephaestion used to call each other by their names. When they went to visit the captured Persian royal family, the queen Sissy Gambus mistook Hephaestion for Alexander, and when she realised and apologised for her mistake, Alexander responded by saying, "'You were not mistaken, mother, this man too is Alexander.'" And Paul Cartledge, who's a British ancient historian and academic, said that Alexander seemed to have referred to Hephaestion as his alter ego. And I read a bit more into this, which is the idea of calling a lover or or a companion by one's own name is another way of saying alter idiom, which is Latin for another self, as lovers are often said to mirror each other, to have the same preferences, to think alike, sometimes even look alike. So that's where the idea of my other half or my better half comes from, which is Mm. more commonly used today. 
which is totally fascinating. So that's where the phrase of call me by your name comes from. And it originates from the love affair between Alexander and, and Hephaestion, which obviously is a gay love affair. And, and that's why it's taken on this gay trope that's being perpetuated now in the film and then Lil Nas's song. <laughs> but then to conclude my very straggly essay, <laughs> I'm going to read a quote by Richard Broutigan in Watermelon Sugar, which is a postmodern, post-apocalyptic novel written in the 60s, which inspired Harry Styles' very popular song, Watermelon Sugar. Ooh. So I guess you are kind of curious as to who I am, but I'm one of those who do not have a regular name. My name depends on you. Just call me whatever it is in your mind. If you're thinking about something that happened a long time ago, somebody asked you a question and you did not know the answer. That is my name. Perhaps it was raining very hard. That is my name. Or somebody wanted you to do something. You did it. Then they told you what you did was wrong. Sorry for the mistake. And you had to do something else. That is my name. Perhaps it was a game you played when you were a child or something that came idly into your mind when you were old and sitting in a chair near the window. That is my name. Or you walked someplace, there were flowers all around. That is my name. Perhaps you stared into a river. There is something near near you who loved you. They were about to touch you. You could feel this before it happened. Then it happened. That is my name. Which I just thought was so beautiful in that line my name depends on you. So mm. beautiful and so kind of terrifying, actually. But it does seem to fit into this tradition of nomenclature. I love that word. So there we go. <laughs> my very song-related essay on the phrase of call me by your name. But I just thought it was so interesting that it was traced in all these different ways through these songs and then all the way back to Alexander the Great. Yeah, that's amazing that it's taking you on that full little journey there and you've kept digging in it I love that good little explore around one thing that set you off on a whole Mm. cascade of other things that's lovely yeah I'm really um (laughs) it's weird it's a weird thing to do but I really enjoyed it Mm. (laughs) tell me about you what else have you been watching reading listening I oh so I've just finished a gorgeous book that has been recommended to me for some time actually by my mum and I finally got around to reading it it's called The Rosie Project Mm. Have you heard of it? Tell me more. I've heard of it. I definitely heard of it. Yeah, it's called The Rosie Project and it's written by Graham Simpson, who is an Australian Mm -hmm. author. And actually, I don't know if you do this, it it took me quite a while to realise it was set in Australia. I have this kind of Mm. terribly boring blinkered approach of presuming everything's set exactly where I am and less specified otherwise Mm, (laughs) it's often quite obvious quite quickly if it's American but because it was Australian it took me quite a while until there was Mm -hmm. like a mention of Melbourne or dollars or something and still I was (laughs) like oh wow okay (laughs) but it was such an enjoyable read I was so invested in the characters they really got under my skin in a very Mm -hmm. it's not like a gripping book like a kind of page turner whodunit type thing it's just Mm. totally I totally fell in love with the story and the people and I felt like I really knew them in the way that you do characters in a TV show that you might have watched for years. Mm. And it's been a while since I've connected with a book like that. It was just so warm and lovely. Mm-hmm. So the book follows Professor Don Tillman, who is a geneticist working at a university as a researcher and a lecturer. And mm-hmm. so he reads as someone who has undiagnosed autism. So the book never directly references sort of his knowledge or understanding of this or that he's living as mm-hmm. someone with autism and he lives his life kind of apparently not knowing this despite it being really quite 
potentially obvious to those around him. For example, he gives a lecture at one point on the genetics of Asperger's syndrome as a favour to a friend and colleague. And the friends sort of ask him really pointedly afterwards, like, oh, did, did this remind you of anyone you know? And, and he instantly says yes, and then describes someone else that they both know. Mm. It's interesting. I think I read it probably slightly differently to maybe how it was intended. I personally would leave the book thinking, I reckon he does have an understanding of his undiagnosed neurodiversity because he frequently references and is completely aware of his differences and how they relate Mm -hmm. to social norms of day-to-day life. But it is, Mm -hmm. I think, I guess it's written as if he has autism and has no idea and and that's kind of what the story is about. Mm Mm-hmm. When I was writing my notes on this, it made me kind of hesitant just to jump in as, and to describe the book as, oh, right, so the main guy is autistic and mm. but, and just carry on because it's not referenced mm-hmm. in that way. And I was just thinking about that. And I think it's because I'm I'm kind of a bit hypersensitive about how potentially overused autism and Asperger's can be as terms nowadays in the yeah. way people diagnose mm. others left, right and centre quite casually. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just in the case of someone who maybe is, you know, not got great social skills or a bit odd mm-hmm. or maybe goes against the grain of social norms. And I always think mm-hmm. you can have terrible social skills and not be autistic. And equally, mm-hmm. you can be autistic and have great social skills. One does not equal the other. And I think nowadays, as neurodiversity is rightly so far more acknowledged in society, it's got better representation, mm-hmm. it's spoken about a lot more. It's almost therefore become a bit too easy for people to throw autism around unjustifiably yeah. the same way people might with yes. OCD, that, that language of going, yeah. oh, I'm just a bit OCD about that. Well, no, you just like mm-hmm. things clean and tidy. That's a preference. I'm the same. I like yeah. things tidy and neat and that makes me feel calmer and more in control. But that doesn't mean I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And and actually that was quite a big you know learning curve for me over the last years. It was only through hearing more from friends about the true nature of compulsive thoughts and the way they can completely rule and dominate your life in such a debilitating Mm. way. And I've tried to really curb that in my own speech patterns because I'm entirely guilty Mm. of it in the past. I'm definitely not perfect now in saying, oh, I'm OCD about this or or equally actually hearing other people say it and not calling it out. I find that really hard. And afterwards Mm. I always think, oh, I should have said something, but it sounds so judgmental to say, don't say that, but also... It is a really hard habit to get out of, but it's a totally necessary habit that we should all try and get out of because mm. it shouldn't be thrown around so casually. And I, I kind of feel the same about autism. I think it's not uncommon now to hear people say, oh, they're mm. probably just on the spectrum or, you know, in that really casual way. And I, mm. yeah, I struggle with it. I, I get it sometimes. I know in our generation, we're quite lucky that science and education had taken a leap forward and people of our age did have better access to diagnosis and support Mm -hmm. whereas perhaps our parents generation didn't and therefore there probably are a lot more undiagnosed people who would have had a different path had they had better support for any degree of neurodiversity so I just Mm. I don't know I think it's something that I feel quite passionate about so then when I was trying to think about how to describe this book and this character I was like I don't want to fall into my own trap of what I sometimes struggle Mm. with it was a really weird one yeah Bryony Gordon's memoir Mad Girl is really interesting in that regard it's um, a memoir about her life in her early 20s and different jobs and struggling with sort of alcohol and eating disorders and abusive relationships but she also has OCD I think she's got pure O which I'm not sure if that's different from OCD Mm -hmm. or a sort of an offshoot of but her descriptions of it are really 
clear in, in breaking down the difference between what is commonly referred to as OCD and what is yeah. what it's actually like to experience it. So that's a really easy access point into understanding what it's like, I think. That's great. I'll have a look. Yeah, totally. It can just be so undermining to and just take away the validity and the the severity that people mm. live with with various different conditions or mm-hmm. all these different things. It's that classic thing, isn't it? It becomes more spoken about, it's normalized, which is a good thing, and then it can almost mm-hmm. edge the other way and we need to kind of still treat mm-hmm. things with the respect and the differences they deserve. Anyway, mm. that was a little tangent to start us off. Back to the book. <laughs> so this called The Rosie Project. Um, the main character, Don, mm-hmm. is a character, let's say, that the author writes with traits and qualities that are very often associated with autism. And he's a mm-hmm. researcher in genetics. And he has basically, the book follows him undertaking a new project separate from his normal work, which he entitles The Wife Project. And he wants mm-hmm. to find someone and, and get married and live that life. Then he has, he has been sort of dating in the past, never successfully. Mm-hmm. And he devises this highly effective, in his eyes, questionnaire, very detailed questionnaire, that should effectively mm-hmm. rule out unsuitable candidates for the role of his wife <laughs> and leave him with mm-hmm. the woman most likely to be his perfect match. So he's basically, mm-hmm. it sounds kind of weird, but then you think, well, he's just taken online dating and dating apps to a, a bit of an extreme in terms of making it a bit more like scientific yeah. research. So there's lots of different outcomes of him basically doing this. And eventually mm-hmm. he meets Rosie and she is entirely unsuitable in terms of the questionnaire. So he instantly dismisses her as a mm-hmm. candidate but then continues to to see her and to help her as a friend with her own project Mm -hmm. which they then title the father project Mm. to help rosie find her biological father okay so rosie's mother had passed away Mm -hmm. when she was quite young and she was then brought up by her stepdad whom her mum had cheated on to have rosie if that makes sense so her mum was with phil Mm. and then had a one night stand with someone of which Rosie was the product of, mm-hmm. but then she was brought up by her mum and Phil mm-hmm. and then her mum passed away. So there's this quite tense mm-hmm. relationship between Rosie and her stepdad and she's searching for her real father and Don being a geneticist helps her with this. And so this kind of mad but brilliant and comical at times wild goose chase with a lot of detail goes out of them trying to track mm-hmm. down her father. And we see this relationship between Don and Rosie change and develop and... Ultimately, we see Don developing feelings that he doesn't understand or quantify as anything other than something new Mm. because he's written her off as a a candidate for the wife project that's kind of dead and buried. Mm -hmm. And then you just see this this relationship develop and it's so beautiful. And it was Mm. quite interesting. uh, Quite early on in the book, I thought like, oh, okay, right. He's met Rosie and the book is called The Rosie Project. This is going to be straightforward. Mm -hmm. Great. But it it really Mm -hmm. is. And it takes a wonderful journey to get there. And it crosses lots of interesting sort of bridges. And it's also really funny. I think, I don't know about you, it's quite rare for me for a book to make me really laugh out loud. And I had that (laughs) a lot with this book. I was just chuckling away. It's so endearing and and confronting and surprising in a really delightful way. I think Mm -hmm. when you settle into a book like that and you you really do start seeing the world through someone else's eyes Mm. in this instance you start to really understand how and why things work for Don in the way they do and and his thought process makes Mm. so much sense and his reasoning is totally based on logic and and fact and Mm -hmm. it makes you kind of go oh yeah okay I maybe I should look at it like that Whereas if you kind of just interacted with that behavior on a day-to-day level, it might come across surprising or a bit startling, but because you're reading it through his lens, it all just beautifully falls into place. It's really pleasing. Mm. It's a really lovely experience. 
It was a really lovely read. I raced through it in a, in a couple of days because it was just so joyful and I really, mm-hmm. really made me smile a lot of the time. And actually, I think my mum said, there's two more. There's some sequels. That's always fun when you finish oh, a book you love and you know there's yeah. more. I think it would actually, I think it'd make a brilliant film. I've got a vague memory of reading somewhere that I think he originally wrote it as either a screenplay or a TV pilot or something. And then it took years oh, to get it to its final form of, of being a novel. Mm-hmm. But it very much reads like it could be a great TV show or <laughs> a great film or something. But yeah, The Rosie mm. Project by Graham Simpson. Totally joyful little read if you're looking for something that fills your heart with love. Fantastic. I definitely got it on my shelf somewhere. So I'll, I'll pull it out and give it a go. Mm. I've been reading as well, mm-hmm. a really interesting book. And it's interesting as well what you were saying about a book that's not set in England. Mm. This book is an Italian book. So it's called A Girl Returned by Donatella di Pietrantonio. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> really had to gear myself into that one, <laughs> which is a really good read. It follows the story of a young Italian girl and it's an Italian book. And incidentally, the translator also translated Elena Ferrante's book. She's called Anna Goldstein. And it actually retains a lot of a similar tone to the Ferrante novels as a result, which I think it's so interesting, isn't it? Mm. How much a translator will impact the tone and feel of a book. Yeah. As well as an editor, how much they affect books and yet get so little credit in comparison with the writer. Although, Mm. you know, obviously a writer should be credited. But anyway... Mm. (laughs) Yes, it follows a young Italian girl who's 13 years old. And I didn't originally in my head place it in Italy and then suddenly had to switch into, oh, okay, we're in Italy. That makes sense. Who is abruptly returned to her biological family, having been raised by another family. And it's her adjustment to living with her real family and a whole host of siblings that she didn't know she had in relative poverty, having been living a fairly wealthy life with her adopted parents. And it's a really poignant novel, actually. It's It's got very real characters and very real situations. And it's so interesting, the tense and fractured but intensely close relationship between family, both mm. adoptive family and biological family, even though she hasn't known this family she she develops these incredibly close and yeah mealy relationships with her new family which is her biological family it's a really interesting book i really enjoyed it and i really rate it Mm. and that's all i got to say about it (laughs) wow pretty good i love it i love all those things sounds great yeah the other thing that i've been obsessing over this week and Mm-hmm. literally I've been thinking about it ever since and then maybe the last few days haven't and then was writing up all my thoughts about it and was like oh I forgot how good this was we watched a documentary on the weekend called Sherpa on Netflix and it mm. blew my mind I just mm-hmm. there's nothing better than a totally revelationary documentary that you just oh obsess over for a bit so yeah it's called Sherpa and it's about yeah Sherpas do you know <laughs> what Sherpas are so it's people that help other people climb mountains, is my impression. Aha! Okay, well done. So you, I knew absolutely nothing. I didn't know what a Sherpa was or who they were. Okay. Which is really sad. And it's totally fascinating, this documentary, to understand more. So mm-hmm. that's really interesting that you say that. So Sherpas are mountain-dwelling people in Nepal, based in the Himalayas. And mm-hmm. 
the word Sherpa is often thought to be a term for a mountain guide because that is what they're so well known for. Yeah. But it's often not understood or known that actually a Sherpa is an ethnic group. It's um, not just a job or a trade of mountain guide. It's just that they've become so synonymous with being incredible mountain guides that people think, oh, a Sherpa is a mountain guide, whereas it's actually an ethnicity. That's so interesting. Isn't it? And so this documentary is all about Sherpas and their connection and history and their present life with Mount Everest Mm -hmm. and the climbing of Mount Everest. And it is so incredible. So firstly, the whole Everest thing is just jaw-droppingly terrifying. And I I guess I kind of knew climbing Mount Everest was an intense activity for all the obvious reasons. But (laughs) the, (laughs) the uncertainty and humongous risk that Mm -hmm. just can't really be calculated or predicted or worked around is mind-blowing. I was just so like, wow, at the whole thing. And that's totally reflected in the industry, actually, which I was also very unaware of. So give me a guess. How much do you think it costs to book onto a commercial climb of Everest? If you wanted to book on and climb Mount Mm. Everest with some guides and all of that, what do you think you'd be paying? Upwards of 20 grand. Just a cool 100. (gasps) 100 grand. Fuck. That's a lot of money. I know. It's mad, isn't it? It's huge. And these companies are all, you know, hugely profitable Western companies. And a lot of that money also then, I think a third, I think they said, goes back into the Nepalese government mm-hmm. and the Sherpas, who are the people who enable these expeditions to take place and are, as you said, mountain guides with the expert knowledge and the people without whom none of this would be possible, get a very small proportion and have far fewer rights in the whole Mm. expedition which I'll go into later so the documentary starts by introducing us to Ferbatashi who is a Sherpa who has climbed Everest 21 times Jesus Christ can you believe that 21 times it's a really emotional start to the documentary actually as we meet his wife who is in absolute pieces every time he goes up the mountain and you'd think okay that's the way of life it's expected you know yeah but not at all it's so heartbreaking to watch and she Mm -hmm. she lost her brother on the mountain oh god and she's begging her husband to stop climbing but Mm -hmm. he won't like he can't it's his entire existence it's like his oxygen Mm -hmm. at one point she she heartbreakingly says that he loves the mountain more than he loves his family. Aww. So it's this really stark beginning of the kind of power that the mountain holds over mm-hmm. these people. And the way the Sherpas talk about Everest is totally stunning. You know, they call Everest, they refer to her as she and her, and mm-hmm. they talk about her beauty and her strength and her power and that she's a sanctuary and, and the spiritual connection. It's so moving and you can mm-hmm. really immediately feel that synergy between them and the mountain. Mm-hmm. And that is set in quite stark contrast to the Western tour companies and the Western climbers and tourists who speak about it totally differently. It's all about, you know, reaching that goal and dominating mm. the mountain and pushing yourself, taking mm. the challenge. Whereas the Sherpa see it as a kind of two-way interaction, the climbing of them and the mountain together, mm. not just human climbs mountain. And the Sherpas have so much respect for Mount Everest, not to tar all Western climbers with the same sort of negative brush. Of course, they mm. have respect for this amazing mountain as well, but just in a really different way with a different set of mm. language and attitudes. And I just was so moved by the Sherpa's respect and interactions with mountain climbing mm. and the mountain itself. The other thing that surprised me that was that 
climbing Everest is a much bigger enterprise and industry than I than I thought. So there are mm-hmm. 38, this, this documentary was made in 2014. Mm-hmm. And at the time there were 38 commercial expedition companies and groups, as well as like film crews and stunt expeditions and all of these crazy amounts of people that are trying to summit Everest. And mm. of course, all of those many people need a lot of camps and equipment. Mm. And climbing Everest now is a very different experience to what it was. It's still obviously a huge feat of strength and resilience, mm-hmm. but there is a lot of aid and support in enabling it to happen, mm-hmm. which is all provided by the Sherpas and you know what they do to literally enable your climb. So they go ahead at each stage and build the camps for the clients to stay in during mm. their climb at various stages. And obviously they have to do this by carrying enormous amount of kit mm. going up and down and up and down. So they take on the most perilous parts of the mountain multiple times instead mm. of just the two times that the clients would go up and down. And because of this, far more Sherpas die than mm. foreigners. So a Sherpa will go through the icefall, which is the most dangerous part of the route, 30 times a year. And those on an expedition will obviously just just do it twice or maybe even mm-hmm. once. I don't know if the route is the same. And the icefall is, oh, it's so crazy. It's literally like Russian roulette. You know, they mm-hmm. kind of know ways, obviously, to be mildly more safe, like going through it at night. So it's like a bit colder and the ice is a bit more firm. But mm-hmm. it is still totally Russian roulette as to when it will shift and cause utter devastation and I mean, you can kind of see and understand the passion that this climb invokes in people throughout the documentary. Mm. And you can see how people believe that that risk mm-hmm. is warranted by the incredible reward. But it becomes then very dangerous territory when you look at it from the Sherpa's perspectives and realise they're doing it 30 times a year. And that mm. is extraordinary. And is that risk still worth it? Mm. And the documentary really brilliantly explores and sort of exposes that risk that the, the paying customer forces Sherpas to take especially if there is some resistance because of dangerous conditions or recent Mm -hmm. events and maybe the Sherpas are saying it's not safe. There is that pressure of clients who have paid a £100,000. They do not want to be told, oh, it's not safe, guys. Come back next year with another 100 k We'll try again. They've paid so much. But despite that, the Sherpas can't just be expected to risk their lives Mm -hmm. just like that because of the cost. And that feeling kind of is Mm -hmm. growing more and more vocal through the documentary. And you know from the beginning of the documentary because of sort of the text on the screen and the stat that says, so you know what's coming and you know Mm. there was this huge incident and then it it comes and it's basically uh, the 2014 Mount Everest ice avalanche. I couldn't believe, you know, that they were happened to be making this documentary when this happened. Mm -hmm. It is totally extraordinary what they've captured and what they've made, but it's obviously in equal parts devastating the loss of life from this avalanche was profound 16 people died and all of them were sherpas and the rescue mission was treacherous and took a lot of time and some bodies were never actually recovered which is completely devastating for the families as Mm -hmm. they then can't be laid to rest which according to their faith means they then can't reincarnate so it's a huge deal Mm -hmm. and you kind of see that grief turn to anger which was possibly already mounting and growing over time because Mm -hmm the Nepalese government don't do enough to support or compensate the Sherpas when there is that huge loss of life and they don't acknowledge Mm. that this huge industry they benefit so massively from is underpinned by these people that don't have enough rights or support. And Mm. so the the Sherpas don't want to continue with the season. They don't want to do any more because of what's happened out Mm. of 
you know, out of respect for the huge loss of life and also up because of the risk. They're, they're saying, no, this is enough is enough. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting is you see this guy. So it also focuses Everest commercial climbing company mm-hmm. leader. And he's kind of also been a bit of a focus in the documentary. And he starts out by talking about the Sherpas like they're, you know, they're his best friends, they're his colleagues. He's got such respect for their knowledge. These expeditions couldn't go ahead every year if it wasn't for the Sherpas that he employs. Mm. And then they don't want to carry on with the rest of the season because of all of that. And Mm. you can see his turn. He turns and the shift is just so clear. He starts to kind of blame the decision on the Sherpas to the clients. He's like, oh, they Mm. don't want to do it. And then he starts to almost turn the Sherpas against each other. He's saying to the the clients, oh... Mm. The other guys say that if you, if my team, if you guys do the climb, you carry on with the season, they're going to like lynch you. They're going to break your legs so you can't keep climbing. And then later when they're interviewed, they're like, no, no, we've never heard that. No one's mm. ever threatened us. Do you know what I mean? It's just so messed up how he starts to. Yeah. Oh, I'd really, it's really horrible. So he has, this guy has since lobbied for and, and helped invoke quite a lot of change and get mm. more rights and better compensation for Sherpas. But, oh, I just didn't like him in this documentary. He's so manipulative. Mm. It's really quite exposing as well. Anyway, I could just tell you everything I watched in this documentary. It's so, so brilliant. I really recommend it. So fascinating. Very powerful watch and really awe-inspiring and vital, I think, that we know more about the Sherpas and their stories. Yes. Because many, many people will know the name Edmund Hillary for being the first person to climb Mount Everest, but they possibly won't know mm-hmm. the name Tenzing Norgay, who was there as his mountain guide and expert and summited mm-hmm. with him. But Tenzing was never recognised to the same degree. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Edmund Hillary was knighted. Tenzing received a George Medal, so he was acknowledged, but never to the same level. Mm-hmm. And just history is repeating itself currently with that lack of, of respect yeah. and that kind of second-class citizen attitude the Sherpas receive mm-hmm. on a mountain that they know better than anyone and they can call home. Mm. There are a couple of really telling examples of this, actually little slips of the tongue of some of the clients on the commercial climb because obviously so the Sherpas are doing their job incredibly well and there's quite a lot of things like bringing tea and hot towels to everyone's tents in the morning as well as the insane Mm -hmm. extra climbing they have to do Mm -hmm. and that kind of dynamic does bring out that awful treat them like a servant vibe from some paying Mm -hmm. customers which is really horrible and comfortable to watch at one point when the season is uh, looking like it's going to be cancelled because of the avalanche and and Mm. all these awful deaths one client is like really brash and he's like can't we get some others to do it can't we can't we ask the other owners over there if they'll do it what he means is, can we ask that other company who employ different Sherpas if mm-hmm. they'll do it? But he refers to them as their owners. And you're just like, wow, it's so telling the way yeah. the dynamic exists on the mountain. Mm. I've ended this discussion about it on a very sad note. And it is, there are some really shocking parts and it's really awful, but it's just so beautiful as well to get mm. to know the Sherpas as a people and to understand their history and their involvement Mm. in everything to do with Everest. And I just, yeah, it was such a surprising documentary to me. I think because of the scale of it all is so massive, you know, the risks are so huge, the costs are so high, the challenge is so complex. And and because of that, the hierarchy is then so prevalent. It's really quite uncomfortable and there's a lot wrong with it, but there's just... I just totally loved and adored finding out more about the Sherpas. It's so incredible. How fascinating and how weird as well that it's all pivoting around the fact that people are kind of just doing this as a hobby, if 
mm-hmm. from the Western perspective, it's an achievement or entertainment. In no way is it a necessity, because sometimes yeah. you see people risking their lives in awful situations, but then some part of you goes, but there's a reason they have to do this. But the whole industry exists purely as a sort of form of entertainment, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to it. There's so many other things I couldn't mm. go into because I'd have made this podcast like three hours long. <laughs> that sounds like a totally profound and, and important and poignant documentary. And I can imagine it's also beautiful visually with images yeah, totally. of the mountain and yeah. that kind of mountain fever that people get. God, that sounds mm. incredible. I'm going to yeah. watch that for uh, sure. Do. Netflix, it's called Sherpa. It's not mm-hmm. particularly new. I think it was 2015 it came out, but mm-hmm. wow, it's worth the watch. Mm. I've watched a very different film. <laughs> it's very, another very sentimental film. I feel like after last week's Fest of Nostalgia, <laughs> mm-hmm. I had to bring up another sentimental film. It was Tamara Drew, which was written by Maura Buffini, who was the genius behind The Dig and Harlots. Aha, uh-huh, yes. Yes, Until My Muff Goes Silver, which I still haven't seen, but it still sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Tamara Drew? I haven't, no. Ah. Well, it's set in the heart of the Dorset countryside, so obviously very nostalgic for me, and Mm. pivots around three sort of groups. The eponymous Tamara is a young journalist played by Gemma Arterton who has come back to the village that she grew up in after I think her mother or her aunt dies and leaves her house in the village. And then up on the hill is a writer's retreat, which is filled with many idiosyncratic writers and run by the long-suffering Beth, who's played by Tamsin Grieg. Oh, I love her. Yeah, she's so good. She's so good in this film. And her dick of a husband, Nicholas <laughs> Hardiman. And then Andy Cobb, who's played by Luke Evans, is a sort of gardener handyman for Beth. The whole plot is set in motion by two scheming 15-year-olds, Jodie and her placid accomplice, Casey. And their characters are so fantastically written. They're so evocative. They're two teenagers, bored as hell, kind of horny, full of angst. And Tamara's going out with a pop star teen idol called Ben, who's a punk drummer. And in desperation to get closer to Ben, Jodie and Casey, the two teenagers, knock over various pins that precipitate plot it's so good it's such a sort of tragic funny romantic film you know that scene from love actually with emma thompson mm-hmm. where she's crying in the bedroom mm. kills me every time every time i hear that song I i'm like oh can't handle it i know yeah it's those sorts of vibes where it's like totally tragic but then also still something incredibly british and funny and and charming about the whole thing and it's paced so well this film as well it's so human and everyone's so flawed and petty and charming and it's saucy but it's still very pg and it's feel good but it's got enough comedy and tragedy to Mm. make it entertaining and not bland and it's surprising but also predictable enough that you feel safe (laughs) it's just a really solid enjoyable film oh that sounds great (laughs) i've written down one line which i absolutely loved so tomorrow has had a bit of a glow up since everyone last saw her in the village and she walks up the fields to the writer's retreat in this sort of soft golden hour light and she's wearing some tiny hot pants and (laughs) this very good-natured and downtrodden Beth absently remarks to her daughter, 
she's poured herself into those shorts. I hope they don't give her thrush. And it's just so well delivered without any cattiness. It's just this totally concerned, filled thing about her, her shorts giving her thrush. And it's such a brilliant line. The whole film is filled with so much delicious innuendo and canny observations about British people and beautiful Dorset countryside. And also just being a teenager in a British village, it mm. <laughs> really, really spoke to me. Oh, that's so great. Mm, and it was exactly what you were saying about Motherland, actually, last week. Mm-hmm. When I first watched it, I was probably about the age of the girls in the village. And now I'm probably about Tamara's age. So there's something really weird about having watched a film being the age of a certain group of people and then coming mm. back to it and very definitely not belonging to that group anymore and having grown up. And it really changes how you see the film, I think. Yes, maybe next time I watch it, I'll be Beth's age or something and have a whole new perspective <laughs> on it again. But it does, it's weird growing up and seeing films differently again. Yeah, actually, that would be such a, such a fun, such a weird and nerdy of me to think this, but it's such a fun activity to like almost watch the same thing that you love or mm. read the same thing that you love at different points in your life and see how it mm. chimes differently with you. I think it'd be really cool to almost mm. like keep a little diary about how you interact with Bridget Jones over the course of your life I don't know do you know what I mean it would be funny to see yes you're totally right that's a really good idea I don't know if I'm organised enough to be able to keep a diary that specifically dates and (laughs) had these thoughts too late (laughs) have a catalogue too organised too organised I can't get my head around it but yes totally 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 love that film and I think everyone should rewatch it because it's fantastic it's an oldie I think it came out in 2015 or something I'll have a look was it on Netflix or something mm-hmm. perfect oh thank mm. you that's my week sorted and it's based on I don't think I mentioned it it's based on Thomas Hardy's Far From the Madding Crowd I believe oh okay I said that with all the all the wisdom of someone who's pretended to read it and I have not <laughs> ah, yes that sounds great yeah. I remember it well I think this is the thing I because I read that it was Far From the Madding Crowd and I was trying to work out you know how those films I don't know The Ten Things I Hate About You is based on The Taming of the Shrew yeah Lion King Hamlet yeah and (laughs) I was really struggling to try and pinpoint the characters and the plot too far from the madding crowd so I don't know whether that's whether it's a different I'll come back to you with more information when I've confirmed or denied I look forward to it you can can hear that (laughs) in the introduction of next week's podcast I'm sure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, take your bets now. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see you back here then in the introduction of next week's episode. Hopefully, if you're sticking with us, thanks so much to any of our new listeners. And thanks for a fabulous chat. As always, Alex, I look forward to chatting mm. next week. Not a moment before. I will refuse to Not talk to you until before. then. <laughs> <laughs> Loads of love. Bye.